6 as we finish the book of Ephesians this morning. It's been a great time and some really, really great studies and applicable studies. Studies to be remembered. They all are, but again, uh, Ephesians is a really special book regarding the body of Christ, which is you and, and the body life. We look at verses 18 through 24 this morning. The title is Praying Always, Praying Always. You know, in verses 14 through 17, Paul had described to us each piece of armor and how we're to put on each piece of armor. But it's not enough for the Christian soldier to, to, soldier to just put on the armor. It's not enough for the Christian soldier to just know the enemy. Because even if you know your enemy and you have the best equipment, it doesn't do much good unless the soldier has the power that he needs to face the enemy and use the armor properly. We have an example of that in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. Remember when Moses was up on the hill and as long as his hands were raised, Joshua in the valley was defeating the Amalekites. But when his arms started to lower, then the battle reversed. The Malachites, God's enemies, began to prevail over God's people. Prayer is important. So, um, you know, his, he had to have his hands lifted up and held up for him in order that, again, uh, God's people could prevail. But notice that right after he describes in verses 14 through 17 each piece of armor, then notice in verse 18 where prayer comes in to the battle. So let's begin with, verses, with verse 18 of chapter 6. And he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Notice again, right, right after Paul finishes describing the armor, he says, And praying always. And praying always. That is, pray all the time. And that's because prayer is the power behind the armor. When we stop praying, our energy fades away. And then it's not going to be long before we stop fighting. Prayer is important if we're going to get victory over our fight with the enemy. And our enemy being the devil. Paul points out several things here about the character of the Christian's prayer life. First, he said, notice, he said, pray, always pray with prayer and supplication. So that says there are different kinds of prayers. There's different kinds of prayer. There's prayer and supplication. Prayer refers to general requests. Just praying for something in general. Lord, you know, bless the people today and, and bless, you know, the church. And bless. That's, that's a general prayer. But supplication is prayer that refers to general requests. I'm sorry, to, 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 to specific requests, like you're praying for something specifically. Lord, bless my brother so-and-so through this time they're going through. Or some specific thing, other specific thing that you're praying for. So again, prayer refers to general requests and supplication refers to specific requests. Both words give the idea that we're to be involved in different kinds of prayer. Every kind of prayer that's appropriate. 
God's word suggests that we can pray publicly and privately. We can pray aloud and softly. We can pray silently and planned or spur of the moment. We can sit to pray. We can stand to pray. We can kneel. We can lie down. We can pray at home. We can pray at church. We can pray at work. We can pray traveling. We can pray with our hands folded or raised. We can pray with our eyes opened or closed, with our head bowed or up. The New Testament and the Old Testament mentions many types, circumstances, and postures for prayer. But it doesn't say that one is better than the other. Jesus prayed standing, sitting, kneeling, and probably in other positions too. You see, the important part is it's the position of the heart that's important to the Lord. We can pray wherever we are, whenever we want, and in whatever situation we're in. Paul said to Timothy, I desire that men pray everywhere. In other words, for the faithful, spirit-filled believer, every place can be a place of prayer. And then the frequency of prayer. Paul said praying always. How often should we pray? Always. The only way we can stand ready to fight is when prayer is constant, it's genuine, it's spiritual, and it's added to the equipment with the rest of the armor. What Paul is saying is that the way to put on the girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of the gospel, is by praying. Praying. Every morning before we do anything else, we should submit ourselves to the Lord. Like Paul said in Romans 1 and 2, present our bodies a living sacrifice. The Jews had several times set for prayer every day. But when the church was born at Pentecost, it brought with it a new characteristic to prayer. Jesus said in Luke 21, 36, Watch and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Luke 18, 1 says, Men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And I like this one. Men always ought to pray and not lose heart because the inference is if you're losing heart, you're not praying. The early Christians in Acts 2.42, it says, continued steadfastly in prayer. Cornelius in Acts 10.2 said, prayed to God always. Paul insisted that his readers give themselves regularly to prayer in Romans 12.12, 12, uh, Philippians 4.6, and Colossians 4.2, and 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Paul assured Timothy that he prayed for him night and day, 2 Timothy 1.3. And it's comforting to know it's comforting to know that people are praying for you. The early church knew how important prayer was and that God honored their prayers even when their faith was weak. Thank God for that. David prayed morning, uh, evening, morning, and noon. Daniel prayed three times a day. So there's no time when we don't need to pray. And or when God won't hear our prayers. So there's no time when we don't need to pray, and there's no time when God won't hear our prayers. But it's only through a regular and sincere prayer life that the Holy Spirit can add spiritual wisdom to our knowledge. Praying always doesn't mean that we're to pray in, in prescribed or noticeable ways every moment of our lives. We don't see Jesus and the disciples doing that. 
And he surely doesn't mean that we're to give ourselves to ritualistic styles of prayer, you know, and forms of prayer that are prayed mechanically, like from a prayer book or praying with beads. That's just meaningless. It's a repetition that shows what the pagan does. Praying always is, is to live in a continual awareness of God. To obey this advice means that when we're tempted, we take the temptations of God and we say, Lord, help me. Praying always is to live in a continual awareness of God. And when we experience a blessing, we thank the Lord for it right away. And we pray for the Lord to use us in any way and situation that he can. Paul the Apostle in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 said, To pray without ceasing. And he said, and to pray in the power of the Spirit, or in the Spirit, which is the power of prayer. Prayer is the power that makes the armor work. The most important and continuous thought that Paul gives about prayer is that it should be done in the Spirit. This is an absolute necessity for prayer. Just putting on the armor doesn't do anything for us if we don't have prayer behind it. Because prayer gives the Christian soldier the energy, the power, and the strength to face the battle. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, he says, I pray in an unknown tongue. My spirit prays, though my understanding is unfruitful. Paul said in Romans 8, 26 and 27, the spirit also helps our weakness because we don't always know how to pray as we ought, but he, the spirit, makes intercession for us with groanings that can't be uttered. So you see, you can pray in the Spirit by praying in an unknown tongue if God has given you that gift. If He hasn't, and your heart is just so heavy and is so burdened about some situation or somebody that you can't really find uh, what to say or or you put it into words and your spirit is groaning. It's just struggling to to say what you want to say. Well, God understands that groaning. God understands that struggle. He interprets that. The groaning of your spirit is, 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 is intercession and, it's a, if, and according to God's will. Or you can pray, Lord, help me. I want to pray for this person, but I don't know what to pray, so please give me your wisdom, give me your insight, and may the Holy Spirit guide my prayer. How should I pray? Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication. Jesus told his disciples to watch and to pray. To be committed to prayer is to earnestly, courageously, and tirelessly bring everything in our lives to God. And Jesus shows us this in the parables. He told about the persistent neighbor who went, and the persistent neighbor and widow, to, to show us how his followers should pray. They were persistent. Jesus shows us this, again, like I said, in in the parables. Again, it was to show us, his followers, how we should pray. And to the scattered and persecuted Christians in the early church, Peter said this, be serious and watchful in your prayers. 1 Peter 4, 7. That means in the right way and sensibly with our minds and our understanding as well as our hearts and our spirits. A lot of Christians never get serious about prayer until they have a crisis 
or someone they love has a problem. Then they're more likely to pray thoughtfully, specifically, and tirelessly. Yet, that's the way we should pray all the time. Hey, I like what A.W. Tozer said. He said, some prayers are like a fire escape, used only in times of critical emergency, never very enjoyable, but used as a way of terrified escape from disaster. They don't represent the regular life of the one who offers them. Rather, they are uncommon acts of the spiritual amateur. Charles Spurgeon says like this, Prayerless souls are Christless souls. For you can have no real fellowship with Christ, no communion with the Father, unless you approach his mercy seat and be often there. Be sensitive to other people's problems and needs, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ, right here in the body. You know, who are going through trials or hardships. You should pray for them night and day, Paul said, like he did for Timothy. Who should I pray for? All the saints. Paul said for all the saints, for believers, uh, for believers who are involved in spiritual warfare. The greatest thing that we can do for our brothers and sisters is to pray for them. And that's how the body of Christ grows spiritually and in love. When one member of the body is weak, wounded, or can't function, the other members pick up the slack by supporting and helping them to strengthen them. Remember when Samuel told the children of Israel, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you? 1 Samuel 12, 23. We can't just think about our own problems, our own needs, and our own life. When a person is only thinking about themselves, the, selfless, the selfishness stops their thinking of other people. But if they're, if they're intimately involved in fellowship with them and they're praying regularly for your spiritual warfare, look at verses 19 through 20 now. As Paul goes on. And for me, so he's talking about always praying, uh, prayers and supplications, and now he's asking prayer for himself. He says, and for me, Pray that the utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is, this is a beautiful part here of Paul. Notice what Paul didn't ask for. He's in prison. He says, hey man, this, this prison chow is bad. Hey, man, the conditions here in prison, man, they're, they're bad. Somebody's got to do something about this. Somebody's got to get me out of here. That's not what Paul asked for. He didn't ask for, for a, a change in food, change in conditions, or, or, or you know, uh, to, to stop the suffering that goes on here. You know, what he was most concerned about was that God would give him the right words to boldly preach the good news to people. When Satan tempted him to keep quiet about the gospel of Jesus Christ, he wanted God's help to give him boldness and to keep him faithful to tell others about Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 31, listen to what it says. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And when they had prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now these were the people who were being threatened, you know, with some type of punishment or discipline for preaching the gospel. 
And notice again what they didn't pray for. They didn't say, oh, Lord, take these guys out of our life. Oh, Lord, stop them. Do something about these people. They're infringing upon our right to preach the gospel. Look what they prayed for. They said, Lord, grant your servants boldness that we may speak your word. And God answered their prayer. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. These persecuted Christians, they didn't run and hide. They didn't ask God to deliver them or remove their persecutors from them. Lord, grant us boldness that we may speak your word. You see, they got together to pray and not fight. They got together to pray, not cry or complain. Instead of being intimidated or bummed about, their, their faith was increased. It says they spoke the word of God with boldness. Paul wanted the Lord's help in his own battle against the devil, and he asked his brothers and sisters at Ephesus to pray for him in that area for boldness. And even though Paul was a prisoner in chains, that was secondary to him. Paul's main concern was for the gospel. He said, of which I'm an ambassador so that I can proclaim it to those that, that need to hear it. And we have a whole world out there that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wanted his fellow brothers and sisters to pray that he'd get victory during the spiritual warfare that he had faced with the devil through his ministry of preaching the word of God. Paul faced the enemy head on. And Paul knew that he couldn't win in his own strength. Now, when you look at Paul, compared to most Christians, hey, Paul, we know Paul was gifted, he was brave, morally upright, spiritually strong, beyond measure. And yet, notice, he greatly needed God's help and the help of his fellow brothers and sisters. He knew that the power and the blessings that he had, they weren't because of his own doing. And that the reason for his spiritual wisdom and effectiveness was because of the Lord. He knew God could use, couldn't use the self-sufficient person because the self-sufficient person feels that they don't need God. It's the humble believer who knows he has nothing and that they greatly need the Lord. He knows it's truly poor, he's truly poor in spirit who the Lord can use and bless. Paul also needed the prayers of fellow brothers and sisters because he was a leader. Our enemy knows that when he strikes the leader, like it says in Matthew, that when he strikes the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And church leaders, even like the Lord himself, uh, like the Lord himself are Satan's special targets. And the more faithful and effective that a leader is, anybody, the more his people need to pray for his strength and protection because he becomes a bigger target for the devil's, devil's schemes to discourage him and to make him self-righteous or self-confident, fearful or, you know, just all about himself. And Satan uses every situation that he can, good or bad, successful or unsuccessful, to try and weaken, sidetrack, and discredit God's leaders in their work of equipping the saints to serve the Lord. In a letter, Paul wrote this in Philippians 1, 12 through 14. 
He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I love that. He said, hey, I want you guys to know the things that have happened to me, hey, it's actually turned out for the better, for the work of God. He says, he says it's become evident to the whole palace guard that my change in Christ and most of the brethren, you know, we have become confident because of my change. And now they become more bold to speak without fear because they've seen what it's done for me. They saw Paul's boldness. The whole palace guard, all those guys that were guarding Paul. They saw his witness. They saw his testimony. In prison, it was important to Paul that, that, that he'd boldly tell others about the gospel. Because you see, it was his own boldness that fascinated the guards. What is it about this man that doesn't make him afraid? Why is he so bold? It drew them to the gospel. It inspired boldness in other Christians to witness for Jesus. Even when Paul asked for prayer, it wasn't for himself. It wasn't for selfish reasons. It was to further the gospel. It was to encourage other believers and to glorify the Lord. Verses 21 and 22. He says, but that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Knowing that the Christians in Ephesus couldn't pray for specific needs or intelligently for Paul because they didn't know all the facts, they didn't know everything that was going on about him, they didn't know all that he needed, Paul says, hey, I'm going to send Tychicus to you. My brother in the Lord, he's a faithful minister in the Lord. And he'll tell you everything that's going on. He says, I'm sending you to him to you for this very purpose so that you may know my affairs. That it might comfort your hearts. Because these people cared about Paul. They wanted to know how he was doing, how he's been treated. Tychicus was chosen to go along with Paul and the others in taking the relief offering to Jerusalem. And he was with Paul during his first imprisonment under Rome and was often sent on missions by Paul. Tychicus delivered this letter for Paul. And then the one to Colossae as well. Both times he was instructed to give those receiving the letter more information about Paul's situation. And both passages, notice, Tychicus is called the beloved brother because he was so special to Paul. He was special to Paul. In addition to informing the Ephesian, Ephesian believers, Tychicus, who was one highly praised as a faithful minister in the Lord, was to encourage them so that he could comfort their hearts. The letter itself would seem to have been encouragement enough. But Paul knew that a personal word from somebody who had been with him recently would, be, would just be added comfort to their hearts. So think about this. Here's a man in prison suffering the conditions of being a prisoner in chains. But, and he's wanting and trying to comfort others. Look at verses 23 and 24. Peace to the brethren 
and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So Paul's closing prayer here is clear and it's simple. He prays for peace, love, and faith, which we see more than once all through his letter. As believers, we need all three together, and Paul prays that they would be the experience and the commitment of all believers. Grace, or God's favor, was a gift that Paul wanted for everybody who loved the Lord Jesus, who loved him with an incorruptible love. That's the love that belongs to true believers. And so Paul is really identifying those who will receive grace as only those love, uh, whose love isn't temporary and whose love won't be, it won't be untrue, but permanent, and that this love be genuine. You see, to apply obediently in the power of the Holy Spirit the principles of peace, love, and faith that are taught in this letter will bring blessings and God's favor to every believer. You see, obedience is the highest form of worship. Because we can do all kinds of things for God, but is it what He's called us to be, or to do? Is it what He wants us to do? It's easier to do what we think God would like us to do than to actually do what he wants us to do. Because sometimes that's very difficult. And we don't want to do it. These biblical principles that we've studied in Ephesians over the last several months work today just like they did in the early church in the book of Acts. That's what we need to understand. Sometimes we look at the book of Acts. We look at the early church as, oh, that was a special time. There was a, those were special people, and God did special favors for them, not any more than he would do for us today. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The difference is people's hearts, people's relationships with God. Today we live in a time that was not a whole lot different than the first century church. Christians were a minority then, they're a minority now. They lived in a hostile uh, uh, time. We live in a hostile time. We can see the the hostility against Christianity today. They lived in a hopeless situation. Without Christ, everyone lives in a hopeless situation. They lived in a pagan world surrounded by violence, ignorance, immorality, and confusion. We do today as well. It's all around us. The Christianity of the book of Acts was not an unusual event. The Christianity in the book of Acts was not an unusual Christianity. The book of Acts and the Christianity at that time is a typical Christianity that works exactly the way it was designed to work. The Christianity today found today is an unusual Christianity to the Bible. to the Bible, to the Word of God, comparing it to the, to the Christianity in Paul's day. The unfruitful Christianity we see today is a misrepresentation with its coldness, with its organizational and methodical structure, its thoughtless ritual, and its weak devotion. But we're churches. We're churches no matter what time period have discovered and put into practice the biblical patterns that we have just studied in the book of Ephesians, they have experienced an important transforming power of Jesus Christ and a work through his body. So in closing, a church that operates 
on the New Testament body life model should show these characteristics. And these characteristics that I'm going to read to you now as we finish are from the book Body Life by Ray Steadman. Right from his book as he closed the book. These characteristics that we should see are a continuous spirit of love and unity resulting in a fascinating, convincing, evangelistic witness to the world. Also, there should be a manifestation of spiritual gifts. All members of the body are encouraged to discover and use their gifts. There should be a vertical rather than horizontal command church structure. Recognition that Jesus alone is the head of the church while the leadership and pastoral gifts are respected and acknowledged and the gifts, creativity, and initiative of all the people are used and all members of the body are honored. There should be an acknowledgement taken from Ephesians 4 that all believers are ministers, all believers, not just the pastor teachers, not just those with the gift of ruling elder or pastor elder are to, be, are to build up and equip the whole body of believers to be ministers in the church and in the world. There should be an emphasis on biblical truth rather than human wisdom, social expectations, or religious traditions. Frequent opportunities for believers to confess their sins and hurts, to share one another's burdens, to care for one another in koinonia fellowship, agape love, and to speak the truth in love. This is body life in a few short statements. And it's a call for a radical separation from the attitudes, priorities, and traditions of this world. It's a call for churches to separate from a lot of worldly patterns and get back to the New Testament church. And remember, the church isn't here to do what other groups do. We're here to do what no other group of human beings can possibly do in the power of Christ. The church church of Jesus Christ is designed to show the life and the power of Jesus Christ to fulfill the ministry that he was given by the Father as he said in the synagogue at Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Luke 4, 18 and 19. The healing ministry of the church is to be carried out through the ministry of every single believer. Not just a few church members. It takes the whole body to do the work of the church. Every Christian is gifted with certain gifts that were promised by the Lord when he ascended to the Father. Our calling as members of the body of Christ is to find out what our gifts are and to put them to work. And if anyone neglects his or her gift, the whole body suffers. The power that these gifts operate by and depends on the imparted life of the indwelling Lord. God has totally provided for every Christian to find out, develop, and use these spiritual gifts in resurrection power through the equipping ministries of the apostles and prophets who laid the foundations of the truth and the evangelists and and pastor teachers who use the word of God to motivate, to cleanse, and to strengthen the people for the task that God's given them. And last, as we carry out this biblical pattern, the church will function like salt and light in a world that's corrupt and dark. 
And at the same time, the church will increasingly show the fullness and the beauty of the person of Christ, which is our main goal. Whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful book of Ephesians, God. And Father, I pray that over the months that we've been going through it, God, that it's not just a lot of great information, though it is, but I pray it would be more than information, but there would be application. Father, that we would put it into practice, Lord to change us individually and to change us corporately, God. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done, for what you're doing, and for what you're going to do, God. Lord, without you, as she said in John 15, Jesus said, without you we can do nothing. Your word says that you are our sufficiency, our all in all, for we are insufficient to do the things you've called us to do, Lord, apart from you. So, Father, we love you. We give you praise and honor and glory, Father. We pray now that you would just bless our time, Father, as we begin to take uh, communion together, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you all